Now, if you have children between the ages of four and seven, you can send them off to Children's Church with Mrs. Blandy in the back. Or they may remain with you as we turn together to the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 8. Our text this morning is not quite the entire chapter, but very close. We'll be reading this morning from verse 1 through to verse 27. This is the Word of God. It is inerrant. It is authoritative. And it is sufficient. 2 Kings chapter 8. Now Elisha had said to the woman, whose son he had restored to life, Arise, and depart from your household, and sojourn wherever you can. For the Lord has called a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household, and sojourned in the land of the Philistines for seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and and here is her son whom Elisha has restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. Now Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told him, the man of God has come here, the king said to Hazael, Please take a present with you, and go to meet the man of God, and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? So Hazael went to meet him, and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, forty camel loads. When he came and stood before him, He said, Your son Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? And Elisha said to him, Go, say to him, You shall certainly recover. But the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. And Hazael said, Why does my Lord weep? He answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses, and you will kill their young men with the sword, and dash in pieces the little ones, and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazel said, What is your servant, who is but a dog, that he should do this great thing? Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master, who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? 
And he answered, He told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day, he took a bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face until he died. And Hazael became king in his place. In the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned for eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. In his days, Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. Then Joram passed over desire with all his chariots and rose by night. And he and his chariots, he and his chariot commanders struck the Edomites who had surrounded him, but his army fled home. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. Then Libna revolted at the same time. Now the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Joram slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was twenty-two years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah. She was a granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. He also walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as the house of Ahab had done, for he was the son-in-law to the house of Ahab. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless your word as it goes forth, that you would allow it to take deep root in our hearts, that we might obey you, that we might trust you, that we might serve you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to ask you this morning, one of the things that often I will try and do as I think of a text, as I try and think of a real-life situation that describes what's going on, at least in principle, in the text. And I had difficulty, so I'm going to describe what would be a, a completely... I'm sure, fictitious experience for you all. You've never experienced this, but perhaps you can follow along with me. It's a situation, perhaps, when you were a child or with your children, when you asked your children to do something, eat their dinner, clean up their room, and you saw that they weren't doing it, as you told them. Again, I'm sure that doesn't happen to you, all of you and all of your children, I'm sure, obey instantly. But one of these cases in which you say, well, you need to do this or you're not going to get to watch television tonight or you're not going to be able to go outside and play. Sure, sure. A few minutes go by, you look and the thing is still undone. And you say, you do realize if you don't eat your dinner, you will not be able to go outside and play, right? Yes, yes, I know. A few more minutes go by, and you say, Now, I have told you, you know what I've told you, right? 
Yes, sure. Okay. Dinner is over. The dishes are put away. And the dinner hasn't been eaten. And you say, well, you can't go outside and play. And the response is, well, I had no idea. What do you mean? If I would have known that I wouldn't have been able to go outside, I surely would have eaten my dinner. And you shake your head and walk away and think, how much more could I have given warning about the judgment that was to come? Now, that's somewhat humorous when we're talking about a meal or a room that needs to be cleaned. But when we're speaking about matters of life and death and the kingdom of God, it takes on a more serious turn. Because you see, that is very like how God treats His children. He continually warns us of the judgment that is to come unless we repent, unless we have faith, unless we trust, believe, and obey. And what is happening here in the kingdom of Israel, and also to some extent, a lesser extent right now, in the kingdom of Judah, is these kingdoms are saying, yeah, sure, sure, God. But they're not doing what they're told. And so what I would like us to see this morning is how this judgment now is beginning to roll upon the people of God. As we go through successive chapters now, it will pick up speed and pick up volume as we see judgment coming on those who flout the will and the word of God. The first thing I'd like us to see is in this first vignette, in the first six chapters of this chapter, six verses of this chapter, is that judgment seems far away. It's a time in which we know there's judgment out there, but it seems very far away. We don't need to take immediate notice of it. And then we will see judgment that is prepared for Israel. Judgment seeming far away, and then judgment prepared for Israel. And then finally, we'll see judgment and promise for Judah. Judgment seeming far away. Then we turn our eyes to Israel and we see judgment prepared for Israel. And then we look to the kingdom of Judah and see judgment and promise for Judah. So let's take a look then at the beginning of our chapter together. And a familiar face comes into the story. She's not a familiar name because she doesn't have a name. She's the Shunammite woman. She's the woman whose son was raised from the dead. But she comes back into our sight. And we pick back up her story. When we left this woman in chapter 4, it was a very different situation. This was a woman who was doing very well financially. She and her husband had sufficient means that they added on a little prophet-in-law apartment for Elijah and Elisha. Uh, she had income. There was wealth that was available to her. And after she prayed and sought out the Lord, the son that she had wanted and who had died was restored back to life to her. So when we left her, life was pretty good. And so now we come back and we see a bit of a different story. Her life had been one that was defined by grace. If you look at verse 1, she is defined as the woman whose son God had restored to life. And then again in verse 5, we see it three times, restored to life restored to life. Her life is defined by grace, but now it's defined by a challenge. 
Famine is in the land, and this is a famine that God has sent upon the land of Israel. It's not just a bad season that's dry, but our text tells us that Elisha comes to the woman and he says, you need to leave town because a famine is coming because God has sent it. The Lord has called for it. And so she goes from being a woman who had about everything she needed to being like Naomi. She's now a wanderer. She's poor. And by every indication, we would believe at this point that her husband has passed away. You remember in chapter 4, he was old. And now, he's nowhere to be found. So there's a very good uh, sense that she is now wandering, homeless, husbandless, and without protection outside of the land of God. But she doesn't go out by herself, because she, she goes listening to the Word of God. She is one who is obedient to the Word of God. She hears God's Word and acts upon it. Now, I want you to notice something here to take comfort in your own life. And that is that listening to and obeying the Word of God does not give you an exemption from difficult circumstances. Do you see that? You see, there are some in our day that would say, well, if God sends a famine... As long as she believes in God, and as long as she claims it, out of her dry ground will prop up all kinds of vegetables, and she'll be fine. But that's not what happens in our story. She suffers the famine just like everyone else does. And she has to flee to a different place. Obedience, our obedience, does not exempt us from difficulties that come in judgment. We need to think about that the next time that we are critical of our nation. There is much to be critical of our nation of, especially with respect to how our nation treats the Word of God and the Church of God. But we need to be careful. Don't wish for judgment on America, because you might get what you wish for. And you're living in the midst of it. You can't escape the circumstances that God brings. But at the same time, in the midst of all of this difficulty, it must have been a great encouragement to her that God had not forgotten her. Have you ever been through a difficult time in life where perhaps you've been stressed out or there have been challenges and you go to the mailbox and you pull out a card from someone and it says, just thinking of you, hope that you're having a good day. What a lift that is, or a phone call, or an email. Imagine that, times a hundred, times a thousand, as this woman, in the midst of this difficulty, she hears from God, through the prophet of God, that God specifically remembers her, and is taking care of her, and has made provision for her. This is a great encouragement. It's a living example of what our Lord talked about in Matthew 10 where he says, if you give but a cup of cold water to a prophet of God, God remembers. God remembers the work that she has done. This is the kindness of God to her in providing for her. And we then see the providence of God. For she has gone seven years, and she comes back. And all of her best laid plans are now 
of no use. She's come back and her land is gone. Imagine that. Have you ever spent an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out the way things should work out or what should happen in a series of events and then it doesn't quite turn out that way and then you're consumed by worry and fear when it doesn't happen the way it should? That's what strikes her, I think, at this moment. But she comes back and she doesn't spend her time in self-pity, consuming herself with worry. She rather goes to the king and she appeals to him. She cries out for justice. And unknown to her, the king is having a recitation of all of the great deeds of God through Elisha. Gehazi is there playing CNN reporter. What happened, Gehazi? What did Elisha do then? Can you tell me a story? Tell me another one. What happened? And Gehazi is telling these stories. He's flourishing with them. We think perhaps that this is an occurrence that happens before the events of chapter uh, 5 that Gehazi is still the servant of Elisha. This is out of chronological order. And he's describing basically all the things that you know from chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5. All of the things that God has done through Elisha. This should be a great comfort to you, to know that God has his deeds not only acted out in history, but recounted for the blessing of his people. You see, this book was written, as we've said, to exiles, and they would be encouraged by it. Well, the emphasis here is on telling the stories. You'll notice that the word tell occurs over and over again in verse 4. Tell me all the great things. And in verse 5, while he was telling. And in verse 6, and when the king asked the woman, she told him. This is a recounting of the great works of God. And just at the very moment that they come to the story of the Shunammite woman, she walks in the front door. What an incredible coincidence. Not. This is God working in history in Providence. God is in control of a king's desire to hear a story and the order in which a servant of God tells them and the steps of a woman and a son. And she comes in at absolutely the perfect moment. Gehazi is struck. You can almost imagine if you were sitting there in the room. Well, you see, King, there was this woman and she had a son. Wait a minute. There she is. And and there's the son. I'm telling you, he was as dead as the dirt. And they raised him from the dead. Can you believe this? And the king... Is this true? Yes, Your Honor. My son did die. You you mean you're the person that we were just talking about? Yes. Do you imagine the drama that springs up from that? This king is affected. He's so affected that he says, not only don't give her back her land, give her back her land and everything the land would have made, all of the profit for the last seven years. He is struck by this. He is fascinated by this. 
But there's a sadness in the midst of the story. You see, judgment seems so very far away to this king now. He's fascinated by what God does. He's interested in the story of the woman. He's interested enough to come up with some money out of his own pocket. But you see, he's fascinated, but he does not have faith. Because you see, this is the same man that in chapter 3, it is described that he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not repent. Do you know people like that? Perhaps that's you here this morning. That you are fascinated by what God does in the stories of the Bible. That you are fascinated how a man could walk on water or raise the dead. And it's so interesting to think about a little boy giving a lunch and feeding thousands. But you see, God doesn't want your fascination. He wants your faith. He wants your trust. He wants your life to be changed, not your interests. See, judgment seems so far away here in the kingdom of Israel. But then what happens is the scene shifts to Syria. We've seen the failure of what it looks like to be committed to God. We have fascination, but we don't have faith. But now we see the next step in the story. We see that judgment is prepared for Israel. And judgment is prepared through the Syrian scourge. The Syrian scourge, a scourge is a type of whip that is very painful to have used upon you. And it's a very kind of abrupt change. We go from hearing of the stories of Elisha back to Elisha himself. And Elisha's doing wonderful things, sort of secondhand through his stories. He's not even present in Israel. And now what will he do that he is present in Syria? He comes to Damascus, and he comes on some sort of a mission. We don't know what he's there for when we first start to look at the text. We might rightly wonder, what in the world is he doing here in Syria? You see, part of the interesting fact about him being in Syria is we're used to Elisha being an instrument of God's grace. Right? We've seen it in chapter 2, chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, And seven, he's either rescuing Israel from an army, or he's finding an axe head that's lost in a river, or he's raising someone from the dead, or he's doing something to help God's people. Now we're about to see what happens when God's grace is spurned. We see Elisha starting to be an instrument of God's judgment. And so he walks into Syria, and the king, Ben-Hadad, seeks his help. This is ironic because you remember in chapter 1 of 1 Kings, the king of Israel would rather find Baal and talk to him than Elisha. But here, the pagan king of Syria says, I hear that Elisha's in town. Would you go ask him if I'm going to get better? And so they go out and they take a king's ransom, 40 camel loads of loot. And they come in a very humble manner. He doesn't say that the mighty and powerful king of Syria asks the puny man from Israel, he says, your son, Ben-Hadad, asks you. He's humble. He's generous. We have every reason to think that he is sincere. But we know that behind that sincerity, there's no reality. Because this is a king that attacks the people of God. This is a king that doesn't worship the living God. He's very sincere here. 
Is that sometimes a description of your life? Are you happy to get God's help, but not so interested in His authority? Are you happy when times are tough to seek the Lord and to promise to pray morning, evening, night? To read your Bible 15 times in a year? To do anything that you can do to get His help? When it comes to obeying His commands, when it comes to sharing His Word with others, not so much. You see, Ben-Hadad here is in a sense like the king of Israel. He's sincere and he's interested, but there's no substance. There's no substance behind what's going on here. And so the question then comes, will I recover to Elisha. And Elisha gives a very interesting answer. He says, well, yes and no. It's kind of like being a lawyer. People ask me what's a lawyer's answer. About 90% of the time, it's it depends. And that's what really Elisha's giving him here. You can just imagine Hazael scratching his head. With, yes and no. What does that mean? What am I supposed to do? When we look at verse 10, it presents a bit of a dilemma to us. The question comes, will I recover? And Elisha says, go and say to him, you will surely recover. But the Lord has shown me, he will certainly die. And our first thought is, wait a minute here. Is Elisha lying? Is he telling Hazael to lie to the king? And we might say, well, is God lying here? Is this some kind of a trick that God is trying to use to cause a problem in Syria? But I think the solution is, relatively more simple than that. The thing is that Ben-Hadad will recover from his illness, all things being equal. You know that phrase, right? But you know what? All things aren't equal. Because he's going to recover from his illness, but he's not going to recover from the wet cloth shoved down his throat. He is going to certainly die. Because, you see, God is raising up Hazel. He needs Hazel as his instrument. He has chosen Hazel as his instrument to scourge Israel. And the reality is, is that he will recover from the illness, but he will also die. It, it reminds me, it's, it's a story, it's a line that is easily confused. There was a story of a king of Asia Minor who sent off to the famous Greek oracle at Delphi. His name was Croesus. And he said, please tell me what my future will bring. And the oracle came back. You will destroy the mightiest empire in the region. He thought, that is great. So he raised up his army and he attacked his neighbor. There was only one problem. His empire was the mightiest empire in the region. The war that he started resulted in the destruction of his empire and his death wasn't exactly what he had in mind. That's kind of what's going on here. You can imagine Hazel's wheels spinning. What's going on? He's going to recover, but he's going to die. And then Elisha lays the bombshell down. Because you are going to be king. Now imagine that. You go into work one day, and someone says, what's going to happen to your boss? Well, your boss is going to be fine, except for he's going to be fired, and you're going to take his place. How's that going to come about? I wonder what's going to happen there. 
And if you're of a more sinister sort like Azalea, you might start saying to yourself, well, I wonder how I could bring that about. Kind of becomes the story of Macbeth. Macbeth is told he'll become king, and he figures that the way to do it, with a little prompting from his wife, is that maybe if you kill the king, you get to be the king. And so the wheels start spinning. This is the scourge that God is building up. Now, why is God doing this? The answer is there is a sad necessity here. You see, God is not blessing the Syrians. He's not even blessing Hazel. The answer is that all of this is not about Ben-Hadad. It's not about Syria. It's not about power or geopolitics in that area of the world. This is all about Israel and its relationship with God. Do you see that? God moves geopolitics to affect his relationship with his people. You see, oftentimes we, we think in the reverse. We think that God reacts to the war on terror. Or that God reacts to demographic trends in Europe. Or that God reacts to the way history is unfolding. That he's somehow catching up. When in reality, God is the one holding history in the palm of his hand, doing everything according to his own will. And quite frankly, he's not that concerned with his zeal. He's not that concerned with Syria. He's concerned about Israel, his people. See, God has been preparing Hazel for Israel. And Hazel can hardly believe his luck because he doesn't understand any of this. He doesn't believe in this God. He's just heard from somebody that he hears has a pretty good track record of predicting things that he's going to be the king. And so he goes back, he takes the cue, and he runs with it. Look in verse 15. He runs off, and he takes the bedcloth, and he dips it in the water, and instant king. And we know this is true, because there was a Hazel who succeeded to Ben-Hadad, and he's called in the annals, the son of a nobody, which is an ancient formula for a usurper. This is real history, not fanciful story, that God is using to prepare judgment for his people. Elisha, on the other hand, isn't as positively affected as Hazel. He doesn't join the Hazel for president party. He speaks to Hazel, and he stares him down. So much so that I think the second he here is Hazel, he gets embarrassed, he gets uncomfortable. Have you ever had someone do that to you? Look at you, stare you down till you got to look away? I don't mean blinking contests. I mean, where you feel like they're almost looking inside you. That's what Elisha's doing. And after he wins that staring contest, he breaks down here in verse 11 and verse 12. And he weeps. And we wonder, what's going on here? Now, we know there's no crying in baseball. But is there any crying in profiting? In prophesying? Well, there is if you're a true prophet of God. Because to be a true prophet of God, you don't just get words from God and bring them. You are connected to the people of God. And you love the people of God. And Elisha sees this man and he knows there has to be a Hazel. Because 
Israel is on its way to judgment. He's pronounced it. He's heard Elijah. But he's not happy about it. You see, I think sometimes we think that's not God's attitude. And so it shouldn't be ours. We think that the proper way to deal with this is, you know what? America is a rotten place. There's homosexuality that's rampant. There's abortion that's rampant. I can't wait till God wipes the slate clean and gets rid of all of this junk and wipes out all these people and makes his church pure. When in reality, the very thought of that should cause you to weep. If you knew the true power of God, and the true horror of judgment, it would not make you eager for this. That's why the Lord says to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 33, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It's why our Lord Jesus Christ in Luke 19 wept over the city of Jerusalem. Not because he was sorry he had to do it, or he really didn't want to do it, or he's trying to find a way out of judging the people of Jerusalem. It was because he knew the pain and the suffering. And our God is not a wicked God. He is a just God. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But he and Elisha knows that the wicked must be judged. He doesn't skim over acts of wickedness. And so Elisha is broken down. It's a scene that causes us, if we're truly Christians if we truly desire to see God's kingdom expand, to weep for our nation, to weep for the lost. Well, we then travel back to Judah. Now, we're very familiar with the story of Ahab. We've actually been just looking at Ahab and his family for, oh, about 10 or 11 chapters now. We haven't, if you've noticed, we haven't talked much about Judah at all, actually, at all in 2 Kings. But Judah comes back on the scene. And it's not good news. You see, God has been kind of preparing us for understanding what it means to say, walk in the way of Ahab. Because we've been seeing the way of Ahab. And we begin to see Judah's slide. Their slide toward judgment. We see that Judah's following the same path that Israel is. It starts with a very big mistake. Jehoshaphat tries to find his son a wife. And he gets the brilliant idea to take the daughter of Ahab. Now, in, in political sense, it, that makes a lot of sense. Because the Assyrians are on the rise. Syria is becoming a power. There's a natural alliance that could be made between Israel and Judah. And Jehoshaphat is probably thinking, I can cement this alliance. Maybe, who knows, we can even reunite the kingdom in a generation or two. There's only one problem. He's forgotten that Ahab is a weakling with no mind of his own and a penchant for sin and whining. And that Jezebel is perhaps one of the wickedest women in all of Israel. This is the daughter that they raised together. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, but in order to get a good wife, this apple would have to fall a few miles from the tree, the family tree of Ahab. 
And so this woman comes in and surprised, just like her mother, she begins to have influence over the kingdom. Just as a brief aside, parents, this story should show you the importance that is placed on the decision of marriage. It's one marital decision here that will begin to ruin a family and ruin a nation. This is not a good thing. This is a prime-time example of why God is wise when He says, do not be unequally yoked. Well, Judah is unequally yoked, not as unequal as we might think, because the king that is there now, Jehoram, he's not exactly a follower of God. He's not as bad as Ahab and Jezebel, but not much better either. He actually is a mimic. Look at verse 18. He walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife. He tries to act like Ahab and his family. And you can imagine what that looks like, taking people's land, following false prophets, generally neglecting the worship of God. And do we know anything from our study of First and Second Kings? Does God take these things lightly? Does he take them laying down? No. If you want a fuller picture of how God doesn't take this lightly, this afternoon, before or after lunch, turn to Second Chronicles 22. You will see that God is so concerned about what's going on that he raises up the Philistines, and he raises up the Ethiopians, and they attack Judah. And he gives King Joram an incredibly horrible, painful, deadly disease. He literally bleeds out from his bowels till he dies. And the Ethiopians and the Philistines come in, and they kill his whole family, but his wife and one son. You see, God doesn't take lightly to those who walk in the way of Ahab. You'll notice the emphasis here that is on Ahab. Look in verse 27. We see that he is described as walking in the way of the house of Ahab and doing as the house of Ahab had done because he was the son-in-law to the house of Ahab. God wants us to get the point. Judah is sliding down after Israel. But God doesn't leave Judah to its devices the same way that he does Israel. The final thing that we see here is God's provision for his people. The provision comes in two parts. The first part we don't like. The first provision of God to the people of Judah is chastisement. We don't like being chastised. We don't see it as a gift from God, just like our children don't. How many of you think your children actually believe you if you are administering corporal punishment and you say, I'm doing this because I love you? At least at the moment, I assure you, they do not believe you. At the same time, it's perfectly true, isn't it? So it is with the Lord and us. Chastisement is meant to remind us where we're wandering from, to bring us back into the way of life. And so God sends a minor judgment, a chastisement upon Judah. The first thing that happens is Edom revolts. That's a pretty significant event. It cuts off trade with the Arabian countries. It causes a great difficulty for the economy of Judah. 
There is recession in Judah because of the rebellion of Edom. But it's not just that Edom rebels. You see this other little city here, Libna? That rebels. That's very interesting because Libna is actually a city of Judah. It's about 10 or 15 miles east of Bethlehem. So we have an actual city of Judah saying, we're tired of you, we're done. We're going to be an independent city. You know, we've seen Moab rebel, we've seen Edom rebel, now we see an actual city in Judah rebel. God is getting their attention. This would make the evening news. This would make the weeklies, papers, and magazines. It would be a big deal. It would get their attention. There is judgment coming from God. Now, one thing I want to remind you of, though. This is something that I think we can view, especially in the context of history and nations. We need to be very careful if we apply this principle to people. Don't become like Job's friends. And if someone loses their job, say, well, I guess maybe you've got some kind of secret sin because... God must be chastising you. That's why you've lost your job. Or, oh, I heard your kids were sick. Well, you must be doing something at the house we're not noticing because we all know God punishes people for sins. I don't think this is as directly applicable to individuals. But what I will say is this is perfectly applicable to the church. Is the church in America today in a state that is healthy, good, Is flourishing? No. Everywhere we see the Word of God not preached. The Bible challenged is untrue. Compromise with the Word of God. Churches being no more than civic clubs. And we wonder why the church is in disarray. That the gospel doesn't go forth with power. That missions are not more successful that our evangelism sometimes falls on deaf ears. If we would seek the blessing of God, we must obey the Word of God. And that starts, beloved, right here. It doesn't start across town. It doesn't start with some other denomination. It doesn't start in some other place. It starts here. We obey the Word of God here. We follow His law here. We do His will here. We trust Him here. We take these chastisements the way they are intended. It's not just chastisement that comes, though. The final thing that we see is a promise. Look at verse 19. You see, God doesn't just remind them by bad things. He reminds them of His promise. In verse 19, Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah, for the sake of David, his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. So, does Judah meet the same end as Israel? No. Why not? Is it because they're so much more faithful? Is it because their kings, King Jehoshaphat, was so much better than King Ahab? No. Not at all. It's because of the promise of God that He would preserve for the sake of His promise to David. The promise that there would never fail to be a king because the king of kings 
was coming. You see, who is that true lamp that God has promised will be there for David and his sons? Is it Solomon? Is it Jehoshaphat? Is it Josiah the good king? Is it Hezekiah? No. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is David's lamp. He is your lamp. He is the lamp that will never be put out. And so as we think, can we fail in our own lives? Well, of course we can. Can we fail in our own ministry? Well, of course we can. Can we be off track in our emphasis? Yes, of course we can. But we cannot stop the work of Jesus. Just like rebellious people of Judah could not. You cannot stop the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the work that we have to count on. That is the work that overthrows judgment because it satisfies it. That is where your hope and trust must be today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have reminded us yet again of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, O Lord, that You would make us aware of Your judgments, that we would flee from them and that we would flee to Jesus. We pray, Lord, that You would be with our nation, that You would be with Your church, and that you would guide us into all truth by your word and spirit. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. hear the Lord's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and grant you peace, now and forever. Amen.